Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Big deal in the oil patch. Occidental Petroleum is making a $12 billion purchase. Energy expert Dan Jurgen on the industry's M&A. A year ago, people thought U.S. oil wouldn't increase very much. It's increased by about a million barrels a day. So companies really want to be centered there. And innovations in healthcare. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on new sickle cell treatment from the lab to the patient. That represents a tremendous quickening of the pace of progress from a fundamental discoveries to its translation to an effective drug in patients. Plus today's other headlines, Macy's for sale, the whole thing, the dreaded green text bubble, and UPenn's president out after a controversial few months on campus and on Capitol Hill. Frankly, what comes next? Uh, Harvard uh, having a board meeting. There have been discussions about the president at MIT and how she responded. It's Monday, December 11th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli. Andrew is on assignment this morning. He joins us live from Washington, D.C. Hey, Andrew. Good to see you. Hello, hello. Welcome uh, from Washington. It's snowing here. I don't know what's going on really? in New York. Is it really? Yeah. It's raining here. Uh, good weather all up and down the East Coast, I guess you could say, but it is uh, something like 41 degrees, so no threat of snow here yet. Just lots and lots of pretty rain. Joe's actually out today, but Mike's here. And Mike, it's great good to see you. Good to see you. you. Yeah. Great to have you here. All right, sources telling CNBC that an investor group has made a $5.8 billion offer to buy Macy's in a bid to take it private. Arkhouse Management is a real estate-focused investing firm. It partnered with global asset manager Brigade Capital Management on a proposal that was submitted on December 1st. Those firms offering to buy Macy's stock that they don't already own for $21 per share. The group has discussed the proposal with Macy's. Macy's board has met to discuss the offer, but it is not clear how the retailer currently views the proposal. You see the stock kind of lifting toward that bit, of course, it was our, it was at twenty one dollars as recently as March. So this is by no means kind of a uh, a blowout premium uh, relative to where this stock has been in a little while. And you know the story, Becky, has been for a long time right. that the real estate assets of Macy's are are kind of this valuation cushion. I mean, but it's unclear. Been like Twenty years almost right. that people have talked Forever. about the real yeah. estate play being what would really unlock things. And I guess in a private company, uh, you'd be able to do a little bit of a different thing with that, Andrew. That would be the argument. The argument, and we've been talking about this. But this was—you remember—the other question is: Is this really a real estate play? Yeah. And I, I go back to thinking about even Kmart and Eddie Lampert mm-hmm. and and so many people who've tried to turn these these retail um, situations, challenge situations, into these real estate plays. And the truth is, it hasn't always worked. In fact, it's hard to actually identify one that has. And so, um, I'd be cautiously. Yeah, it seems it seems to it it seems to be pinned on a very small number of the stores. Right. I mean, if you have a five or six billion dollar equity market cap for Macy's, you have Herald Square, you know, put a price on that location, I suppose. Uh, But, you know, of course, I mean, those uh, those of us San Francisco location that I don't know. I don't know how much of that is. uh, is I'm not sure. I I mean, I used to cover Macy's years and years ago. This was back in the 90s at the Wall Street Journal. But I. One of the issues that you also have in a real estate situation or in a, in a retailer situation like this, if you look at Eddie Lampert, the problem was they never invested back in the stores. 
Kmart right. stores were still using 1980s NCR yeah. systems, uh, ridiculous things, never fixed any of the stores up. So it was just this slow decline. And you've got to be able to figure out how do you do this and, and really turn the store so that it's not continually losing um, customer traffic. Yeah, of course, uh, Macy's once was the subject of an LBO back in the 80s. Yeah. It went into <laughs> bankruptcy, it came out of bankruptcy, it was acquired by a company that had previously been an LBO. So uh, It was federated. Uh, they, this has been tried. I covered, yeah. I covered federated, exactly. not Macy's. Yeah. Federated bought right. Macy's. Yeah. All right. Meantime, Apple saying that on Saturday it shut down third-party applications that enabled Android devices to use the iMessage service to communicate with iPhone users. Apple said it blocked techniques that exploit fake credentials to gain access to iMessage. One such service called Beeper Mini stopped working on Friday. And I don't know if you guys have been following this, but a number of uh, technology companies, startups and the like, had tried to create a sort of Android, uh, almost a faked out, uh, Android iMessaging system that allowed them to log into almost a, a third-party server using iCloud so that you could, it appeared that you would have the blue rather than the green <laughs> on your iMessage. And uh, Apple said, uh, we're, not, we're not doing that. We're not allowing no. that. So. It, it's, it, I mean, I will say it is difficult. Like if you've got a family chat group and uh, like 20 people all have iPhones and there's the one person with the Android, it creates problems from time to time. But that status symbol, too, I think for, for younger kids is the other issue. It should get easier. Apple has said that they're going to adopt this, this other standard. So it's possible within, I think, the next 12 months or the next time they update the, the uh, software that there will be more compatibility uh, with both services. So we'll see uh, how that, that plays. Software. But for now, it's actually, it, it was, I think it was update. a genuine security issue. So, No, but the last update, they moved and changed a bunch of things. Like, and again, nobody likes change, <laughs> as we know. News over the weekend and uh, talked about uh, incessantly over the weekend embattled uh, UPenn President Liz McGill uh, resigning on Saturday. This after criticism of her testimony at that congressional hearing last week, which we talked a lot about on Squawk Box. She struggled to answer that question about whether calling for the genocide of Jews violated the college's rules. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews. Does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. McGill stepping down as president, but will remain a tenured faculty member at the university's law school. Meantime, the chairman of Penn's board of trustees, uh, for those on Wall Street who know him, Scott Bach, also saying that he will step down. He, of course, had been supporting uh, her. She, he runs uh, Green Hill, the boutique uh, investment bank that's being taken over by Nomura at the moment. Um, lots of questions uh, about, uh, frankly, what comes next. Uh, Harvard uh, having a board meeting um, apparently reportedly just yesterday that may be bleeding into today about its own uh, it's its own president. Uh, similarly, there have been discussions uh, about uh, the president at MIT and how she responded. Uh, that board uh, has been very, very publicly supportive of her. Um, and then the even larger question about just what kind of, um, you know, culture has taken place uh, at these universities and, and sort of how deep uh, some of these issues run and how easy or very difficult generationally they may very well be to change. Yeah, I mean, this has kind of been a slow 
role, kind of watching a, a, a train wreck to some extent to see what happened. I, I think a lot of people looked at that testimony before Congress as something that was um, almost a seminal moment in, in what was happening in all of this. And that's when you really saw the furor rise up. Um, if you've been watching uh, Bill Ackman, who has been so vocal about this and who has been, as I think as one person said, he went full on activist on, on these university presidents. Um, watching how that has played out, he was kind of going through all of this and was tweeting last night that Harvard was having a, a board meeting last night too. Um, so we'll, we'll continue to see what happens. But I think it's been pretty eye-opening for somebody who hasn't been on a university campus in a while, <laughs> quite a while, to see what, I, I, my eyes were opened by some of this, to be, yeah. to, to be sure. Yeah. And the actual it, testimony seemed to be very much informed by specific legal framing of, yeah, you know, they're, they're under some liabilities, up. and it just didn't, And, and it didn't, didn't sound fly. like humans yeah. when, they were, when they were testifying. But, you know, so much of this began, and Becky was at the table when it happened, when Mark Rowan, um, who runs Apollo, came, came and sat at Squawk Box. President McGill is not an anti-Semite. President McGill is just not capable of exercising moral leadership. This was about the palace originally, at least in the context of the University of Pennsylvania, about uh, that, that um, Palestinian uh, literary festival and what was taking place there. And clearly that effort among the donors um, began then and, and only really ramped up. You also saw something, I mean, to put, maybe put it in a business context, you almost saw a bear hug kind of letter. Uh, they, that's what they would call it in sort of the takeover parlance, where you had late last week the board of the, the Wharton School, which is inside Pennsylvania, but is not yeah. an actual board that oversees the university, effectively write a letter to the board uh, saying that they wanted to start nominating people to, to that board and wanted her to resign. It was a very interesting sort of uh, complex. Well, we also saw, of course, the donations. It came at the same time. I was going to say it was start the, same, to leave. It came exactly. at the same time. There was a $100 million donation to the Wharton School to a finance uh, right. building there or finance program there. Um, that was going to be revoked based on what that donor saw as rampant anti-Semitism and said it was a violation of the terms. Um, so a lot of pressure that came. And again, that pressure really ramped up after the testimony before Congress of those three university presidents. Next on Squawk Pod, the scoop in the oil patch. American giants making giant deals, like Occidental's $12 billion buy and the geopolitics at play everywhere else. Energy expert and author Dan Jurgen joins us. The area to be concerned about is a strait that people don't normally talk about called the Bab el-Mandeb, which connects the Red Sea to the, to the wide oceans. And about 9 million barrels a day of oil pass through that, a lot more because of sanctions on Russia. So Russian oil going south, Middle East oil going north to Europe. And we're back. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is off today. Andrew's on assignment in Washington. He's here with us all morning, though. We've got some breaking news just hitting the wires. Occidental is buying oil and gas producer Crown Rock in a cash and stock transaction valued at about $12 billion, which does include debt. That deal will boost Occidental's production by 170,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day and expand its footprint in the Permian Basin. 
This acquisition, the company says, is expected to close in the first quarter of 2024. Maybe not a, a huge surprise because of all the activity that we've seen. There have been some reports right, written up recently about this potential deal that Occidental was in the hunt for this company. Um, the Permian Basin has been such a hot area, and you did see ExxonMobil make a huge move into this, too, with their recent uh, $63 billion purchase of Pioneer Resources. So that really kicked things off. Um, had kind of a hunt going for what would happen with these areas, too. You can see that stock right now, Occidental, down by about 1% to 55.90. I'm just looking at the terms of this. It looks like uh, they're, they're calling this a $12 billion deal, but that does include debt. Um, they're going to finance the purchase with the incurrence of $9.1 billion in new debt, the issuance of about $1.7 billion of common equity, and the assumption of Crown Rock's $1.2 billion of existing debt. So take that $1.2 billion factor out if you really want to see how much this is worth. You get closer to $10.8 billion uh, in how we would measure that deal. Um, Occidental yep. saying that it's going to be able to make some moves with this, too. Yeah, uh, saying it's basically um, adi additive to free cash flow on a diluted share basis, about a billion dollars. That's based on $70 oil, so basically where oil's trading right now. And then, yeah, supporting a 22% uh, dividend increase, 22 cents a share. So rebuilding that, uh, that cash yield as well. Uh, the issuance of shares maybe as part of the financing of the deal. Uh, not sure if that was necessarily known, but it's a, it's a pretty modest amount. It's a $50 billion market cap, Occidental. Right. And again, $9.1 of new debt, $1.7 billion of common equity. We have seen this race for deals with the big oil companies recently. Um, not just that ExxonMobil bid for Pioneer at $60 billion. You had Chevron's bid for Hess at $53 billion. Um, and we'll talk to her about a lot of things that we've seen out there um, and the transition of this company, too, which, by the way, has been a very strong performer in the S&P 500. Uh, I know as recently as September, it was the top performer in the S&P 500. I don't know where things stand right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, Occidental or Occidental. Yeah, Occidental. Yeah. I mean, it's down on a uh, year to day basis, down 10 percent. But that's all of energy is pretty it's much given back a lot of last year's gains. But you go back farther and it's uh, it's certainly up quite a bit. OK, sticking with energy right now, we want to speak with Dan Jurgen. He is S&P Global Vice Chair and author of the new map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Na Nations. And Dan, welcome. Um, good to have you here and uh, great time to be able to ask you what you think about what's happening in the Permian Basin. I think the Permian Basin is, uh, is sort of center number one. And what you're seeing is obviously bulking up as companies are seeking to become get scale and to become more efficient. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. A year ago, uh, people thought U.S. oil wouldn't increase very much. It's increased by about a million barrels a day. So companies really want to be centered there and be in a big position there and gain those efficiencies that come from scale. Yeah, and a big part of the reason is I, I, I think that Occidental was able, at least in some of the areas in the Permian Basin, to be profitable at $40 a barrel for oil. So even though oil prices haven't gone to the highs that some people had been anticipating, right now, this morning, WTI is just above $70 at $70.89 a barrel. Um, this is the place where it's a lot easier to be profitable. And as you mentioned, um, the ability to really scale up. I know that was a big deal for ExxonMobil with Pioneer, the idea that they bought all this additional land, brought in all this additional land that was very near their existing areas where they operated. That's what you're talking about, those efficiencies of scale? Well, efficiencies and technology. You know, the drilling rig count is down, and yet production's really going up, showing that people have become are able to achieve much greater efficiencies. 
than they were even a few years ago. And, you know, of course, you just you just mentioned the oil price, and that reflects the fact that you have this huge surge of uh, new oil coming from the United States, led led by from the Western Hemisphere, led by the United States, but also Canada is at a record. Brazil's at a record. Uh, Guyana, which is in the news for other reasons right now, is also coming on very fast, and all of that is weighing on, on the oil price. All of this is dependent on where things go, and I mean that. The accidental move that the Vicky Holub made to buy Anadarko um, didn't come at a great time because then you had COVID and energy prices plummeted, went negative for a while, and that raised a lot of those things into question. Is that a one-off, though? We look at oil prices down a little bit to $70 because of the concern about global demand, again, as we're heading maybe potentially into a slower time. But what we saw with COVID, I don't think anybody anticipates that well, we're, we're certainly, something like that. We're certainly hoping that the COVID was a one-time event. This is this is back to supply and demand, not not uh, a virus. And of course, the Anadarko purchased by Occidental was seemed controversial at the time, but it's really been made Occidental such a, a even a, a stronger player among the major companies. So, Dan, what is happening right now with demand around the globe for oil? Well, the central thing is that demand is growing. Uh, China's reopened. It's not going to reopen again. So demand uh, next year is, is is expected to be about a million barrels a day less than the growth of supply. Uh, and as long as that, as long as demand, supply and demand dominate, you're going to have that downward pressure on price. Uh, for the OPEC plus countries, they've been cutting and said they'll make further cuts. The choice for them is: Do you keep cutting? Or do you do what happened in 2014, let the price slide and sort of uh, uh, pull our cold water on uh, uh, developing new supplies? But uh, Becky, as we've talked before, there's still the question of risk out there. And we've seen it in terms of Venezuela and Guyana. And we see it now in the Red Sea, the healthy starting to attack shipping. Right. And you bring up Guyana, too. Um, that is certainly where Exxon and Chevron have both placed big bets. Exxon uh, as the developer there and then Chevron with this bet on Hess made a big deal about Hess's assets and, and the part of what was happening in Guyana. But we have seen some concerns about what Venezuela is going to do there. Um, last week, people were saying the people we spoke to, at least, were saying it's not that big of a deal. You sound a little more concerned about what could happen there. Well, so far, it's it's more bluster. I mean, uh, uh, Nicolas Maduro, the dictator president of Venezuela, had this farcical uh, referendum where maybe 10 percent of the people voted, claiming two thirds of Guyana. But what's really piqued his interest is the offshore oil. I think right now it's not taken uh, as uh, as seriously. And the U.S. has uh, strongly indicated including with overflights by jets from the Southern Command, that it stands by Guyana. Guyana is very important because it is the fastest growing offshore oil development in the history of the world. Uh, Maduro is in a weak position. A quarter of the people of uh, Venezuela have become refugees, fled the country. But, you know, the risk is that he will do something that he might seize a piece of territory, plant a flag. And, of course, you have to keep in mind that Maduro's Close allies are Russia, Cuba, and uh, and increasingly Iran. So geopolitics going to be the most important thing driving the oil price market over the next year, or or is it going to be supply and demand? Well, I think I think it's going to be supply and demand. 
I, the area by geopolitics. I mean, I think I think in terms of Venezuela and Guyana, that the view that it is probably uh, you know more words than than uh, than action. I think the area to be concerned about is uh, a strait that people don't normally talk about called the Bab el Mandeb, which connects the Red Sea to the, to the wide oceans. Mm -hmm. And about 9 million barrels a day of oil pass through that, a lot more because of sanctions on Russia. So Russian oil going south, uh, Middle East oil going north to Europe. And the Houthis uh, are seem to feel that they're invincible, that they can uh, attack US uh, naval ships. So I think that's the thing to watch uh, for a geopolitical factor that could affect it. Otherwise, you're looking at supply and demand and uh, you know, not great economic news coming out of China. So Dan, I know this is a fool's errand, but uh, trying to predict where prices go over the next year, what, what would your guess be with everything you know? Well, I think that in the first, let me put it this way, I think in the first part of the year, barring a geopolitical problem, you're gonna see a lot of you know, downward pressure on oil prices, big efforts by the uh, exporting countries to keep the price above $70 a barrel. Uh, I think that their bet is in the second half of the year, uh, demand comes back more strongly and the market is more imbalanced. But right now we're in a time of uh, downward pressure on the market. And this is one of those times when it's supply and demand that are calling the shots. Dan Jurgen, thank you, Dan. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb joins us. He'll talk about how we make sure healthcare innovations like sickle cell treatments and gene therapies reach patients in need. When we have therapeutics that can quite literally alter someone's destiny, alter their life, and determine whether or not they're going to live a life with disability or one largely unencumbered, we need to make sure that access isn't just equitable, but timely. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Up and Becky, cue. Merck and Moderna are launching a phase three study evaluating the combination of a treatment from Moderna with Merck's Keytruda to try and treat patients with certain types of lung cancer. The companies say that they plan to continue the expansion of their clinical development program to additional tumor types as well. And Andrew, that's been part of the big focus of trying to push into additional cancer therapies. Uh, yes, it is. And we're going to talk to Dr. Scott Lee about that and so much more, because the other thing that happened was on Friday, the FDA approved uh, the country's first gene editing treatment, uh, Cascavi, for the patients with sickle cell disease. The approval comes about a decade after the discovery of CRISPR technology for editing human DNA. This is one of the first instances of its use in practice. Join us right now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, also, of course, on the board of Pfizer and Illumina and a CNBC contributor. Good morning to you. How big a deal is this and, and, and what should we take away, not just from what this is, what this drug is, but maybe others that may come from it? Look, I think it's a watershed mo moment in particular because it's the first therapeutic based on the Cas9 uh, gene editing system, the CRISPR-Cas9 system. As you said at the outset, uh, the, the original paper describing that system and the fundamental discovery was published in the journal Science in the year 2011. In 2014, a company was founded, CRISPR Therapeutics, by Venrock uh, with a $25 million Series A, followed by another Series B that same year, about $68 million. That included my venture capital firm, New Enterprise Associates. Vertex eventually licensed that, that compound and put it into clinical development patients. And here we are just 11 years later, and we have a very effective therapeutic or potentially very dramatic therapeutic for patients suffering from sickle cell disease. That represents a tremendous quickening of the pace of progress from a fundamental discoveries to its translation uh, 
to an effective drug in patients. And we're seeing that across the board when it comes to life sciences, a quickening between the time that it takes to go from a fundamental discovery to something that can affect patients. So if you were to look out now at, at other drugs where CRISPR can be used meaningfully in the next two or three years based on where we were and what you've now seen, where's the greatest opportunity? Look, I think the big opportunities when it comes to these gene therapy platforms in particular, and CRISPR-Cas9 could be used in the same places, in many of the same places that people are using lentiviral vectors to replace whole genes, um, are in these inherited pediatric disorders. And that's where they're being used by and large right now, diseases that are inherited, inherited where you have diseases that cause accruing disability in very young patients. And I think in a time, we talked a lot about reimbursement, I think in a time when we have therapeutics that can quite literally alter someone's destiny, alter their life, and determine whether or not they're going to live a life with disability or one largely unencumbered, we need to make sure that access isn't just equitable, but timely. And so one of the concerns about this therapeutic and others in this category, these gene therapies more broadly, is that you're not going to see timely and equitable access across the market, particularly state Medicaid plans may struggle to provide some of these therapies. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in this case when it comes to sickle cell disease. I think these companies have been working with state Medicaid plans for years now to get reimbursement in place. I think at least with the large states, you're going to see coverage get in place in a fairly timely fashion. But when it comes to other gene therapies, I think these state Medicaid plans are going to struggle. And there's things we could do from a policy standpoint to alleviate that. We need to be thinking about that. Doctor, I want to pivot the conversation. Last week, there was a lot of big news that came out of CVS about how they're going to remake effectively their business model, uh, how they sell drugs, what this looks like, how people get reimbursed. Uh, they're trying to level things out in some way. I think everyone is trying to make sense of what, what it really means. What does it mean uh, in your mind for the consumer? What does it mean for the drug makers, just the entire sort of ecosystem? Well, it means that the um, CVS and through their PBM and their health plans are going to now reimburse pharmacies based on what drugs actually cost, some measure of the acquisition cost of the drugs, what the pharmacies paid the wholesalers for the drugs, and not a, form, not a reimbursement rate based on a formula of what the drugs were actually, um, what they're actually getting reimbursed by the drug companies, baking in some of the rebating. So I think it represents a move away from reliance on the rebating schemes and more of a just straightforward reimbursement scheme that pays the pharmacies some element of cost plus. So what it's going to mean for the patient at the pharmacy counter is a much more predictable experience. They're going to they're going to have a better understanding of what their drugs are going to pay because what their drugs are going to cost because they're just going to have to pay some element of what the acquisition cost was, which is more predictable in the marketplace. I think what it means for the health plans and the PBM and CVS in particular is that they're going to they're effectively discounting the value of those rebating schemes because by not paying the pharmacies based on those contracts, they're saying those contracts aren't going to be as important anymore. I think they saw the writing on the wall. They recognized Congress was going to put downward pressure on their ability to extract those rebates. And so they're trying to take out of the system places where they're paying people based on those concessions and ultimately tilt towards their pharmacies. But what does it do to margin for CVS longer term? And by the way, do you imagine that everybody else tries to follow suit? I assume they're, have to, they're trying to protect the margin at some level. Well, they're trying to improve the margin in the pharmacies. So this will, this will um, create more predictable costs to the pharmacies. They're going to probably in the long run lose some of the margin on the rebating schemes that they were engaging in. But I think they recognize that anyway, because they're, they're basically devaluing the, um, 
the value of those contracts by not paying pharmacies based on them. So this really is a tilt, in my view, towards the pharmacies, recognizing that the pharmacies could be a, potentially a bigger revenue driver. They can be getting more foot traffic in those pharmacies and create a competitive advantage for their pharmacies relative to others that don't pay based on cost plus and have less of a predictable relationship for patients. They think ultimately patients are the winner here. They'll probably pay more for certain drugs, but less for others. But ultimately, they're going to know what drugs are going to cost at the pharmacy counter and face fewer surprises. So that experience in the CVS pharmacy could be more predictable than going into another pharmacy that doesn't adopt these kinds of payment schemes. By the way, CVS is rolling this out not just to their own pharmacies, but all pharmacies. They're obligated to do that under federal contracting laws, but it's going to affect their own pharmacies first and foremost because they're going to be taking it up. Okay, Dr. Gottlieb, uh, always good to see you and get your perspective on all of it. Thank you. Andrew, I like uh, the pocket square. Good luck. Thank you. Very nice. You know, um, we, don't, we don't wear blazers on the show, so you don't really get an yeah, opportunity get to, to play with the... Pocket squares. You like could, it. if I wore, maybe you had a little, I don't have shirts with pockets, but if you had a shirt with, you couldn't put a little pocket square in your pocket. That would no. just look like a napkin. That's, yeah. 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 No, no, only, only in the jacket, but I like it in the jacket. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And do a couple of things for me. Tune in to Squawk Box on TV weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Follow Squawk Pod on your podcast platform of choice to get the best of our show anytime. Listen whenever it works for you. And if you like what you hear on the pod, let us know. Send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. Or if you listen on Apple Podcasts, and I know a lot of you do, please rate this podcast, tap to rate right on your phone, give us a few stars, maybe five, or write a brief review. That's the best way to tell us what you think and to help other listeners discover Squawk Pod. That's it. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.